Before we dive into today's conversation, please note that this episode comes with a content warning. This conversation with Chanel Contis contains descriptions of sexual violence, assault, and we talk about sexual acts. Parts of this conversation may be distressing for some listeners. The statistics Chanel shares are confronting, which is why she has made it her mission to drive a conversation and to impact policy change in this country about consent education. We can't talk about consent without talking about what consent is not. I'm really proud of this conversation and believe it's important to sit in the uncomfortable and the hard, but please be aware that discretion is advised before you choose to listen. And if this episode brings up anything for you, please reach out to relevant organisations like Lifeline on 131114. I'm Ali Hill, psychologist and host of Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to exploring what does it take to live boldly amongst the busyness and the change around us. Chanel Contos founded Teach Us Consent, a campaign that mandated consent education in Australia. In order to achieve this, she worked closely with politicians from across the political spectrum, including Prime Ministers. Chanel was a recipient of the Australian Human Rights Commission Young People's Medal in 2021. And in 2023, she was named New South Wales Young Woman of the Year for her persistent efforts towards eradicating rape culture. Chanel has also been presented with a prestigious Diana Award for her humanitarian work and in 2022 was listed as one of the BBC's 100 inspiring and influential women worldwide. Chanel shares her message in her latest book, Consent Laid Bare, writing the gap between policymakers and the experiences of young people. Calling for greater awareness, education, and at its core, a stronger education around empathy in sharing what is healthy intimacy. Consent is complex. We talk about it in this conversation, and it's complex, particularly in our society where messages are mixed at best and toxic at worst. Chanel's book is a battle cry from a generation no longer prepared to stay silent. It is an accessible book and one that I would strongly encourage you to look for and to reach out and read. She's a powerhouse on a mission. This is an important conversation for those who care about youth and the generations to come. Thank you, Chanel, for starting this conversation and for being a part of this. So enjoy the conversation with Chanel Contis. Chanel, it's such a delight to be connecting with you. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast, Ali. It's so excited to be here. There are plenty of really important conversations that I'm keen to dive in with you. But I want to start with at the age of 15, when you were in year 10, you had a speaker come to your school that had an impact on you and your friends and you call it the realisation. What was different about this speaker? This speaker came to our school and delivered consent education for the first time, essentially. And it was almost education about what the laws of sexual assault were, and then by default, what not consent was. And it was different because it was information we had never heard before. It was language we had never heard before. And he was describing instances to us of things that we had seen and heard of plenty of times, but had never defined them as acts of sexual assault which is why I call it the realisation, because me and many of my peers in that 
speaker talk at school basically had the realization that we had been victims of sexual assault and we didn't know it before. And I notice it too when I go into schools and I deliver consent education talks. I mean, I find it so rewarding and I do love doing it, but it is a double-edged sword because every time I watch in real time young girls having the realization and I know exactly what they're going through and it's not pleasant to see. What was some of the, so prior to the realisation and what do you see in real time in terms of how those acts are interpreted, you know, summarised, seen as it just is what it is? What's some of that realisation that happens in the moment? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the biggest things for my peers and then also when I speak to other young people, what seems to really land and shock them the most is things like forced oral sex counts as an act of sexual assault or rape. The fact that consent is void if someone is intoxicated. The fact that relationships or ongoing sexual encounters don't imply consent. You know, that consent is revocable at any time or that having sex with someone at a previous occasion does not mean that you're consenting to sex with them at all times in the future. And I think just the biggest thing that kind of makes that penny drop or have the realisation, whatever you want to call it, is the fact that sexual assault and rape do not actually look like our stereotypical understanding and misconception of what we think these things look like. And we think those things look like types of sexual assault and rape that are exhibited in, you know, criminal mind shows or documentaries or Netflix thrillers or massive clickbait articles of anomalies. It's almost like those images that are far, far away zoom in and become very close and very much in our world. You went on to put out a teacher's consent petition. How did that petition come about? It started on Instagram. It started with me posting on Instagram saying, have you or has anyone close to you ever been sexually assaulted by someone who went to an all-boys school in Sydney? And the responses I received were much greater than just Sydney and were coming in so quickly that I knew it was a national issue before, but I decided it was a national issue that I could maybe do something about. And so I launched the Teacher's Consent website. That was a petition for consent education to be mandated in the Australian curriculum. And alongside that, the website hosts testimonies of sexual assault that happened while people were in the Australian school system. And it got almost 7,000 individuals posting their testimonies on there. So I think that accompanied with the almost 50,000 signatures, accompanied with the media traction and the interest from politicians around the country turned, yeah, that petition into a very successful campaign. So within a year, we saw consent education be mandated from kindergarten to year 10 every single year in Australian schools. That movement and shift, I mean, you you share it and I know it's not a flippant statement, but that it's a massive impact. I guess there are two moments in time I'm interested in in terms of your experience. The first one being when you started to see those testimonials come through, what was that like for you? But then also that secondary, the point where that unanimous decision of ministers of education all around our country was a yes, let's make this consent education as part of our curriculum. What was that like? So if we go to the first one, when you started to see those testimonials, 
tell me a little bit about what went through your head, what were you feeling, what were you starting to recognise in that moment? So before I launched the website, the testimonies were coming through on Instagram, just in my direct messages, and they kind of dribbled in slowly. I actually approached a few people directly asking if they would send me testimonies, and then once I started posting those, they came in quicker than I could read them, and it was just, I don't even know what emotion to describe I was feeling. Mm. It was overwhelming, it was heartbreaking, it was confronting, but it was also really exciting to see the fact that people were willing to put this out there and the response that, that was getting. It was a lot, basically. It was just it just happened mm. so quickly. Yeah. And I mean I'm still I'm sure there is I say that we had almost seven thousand testimonies on teachersconsent.com, but that doesn't even count the thousands that came through on my Instagram messages mm. and the hundreds potentially thousands that I didn't even read or missed because so many were coming through I couldn't even click on all of them. And then that second moment, it's actually quite funny, it was actually kind of anticlimactic because I found out before I was allowed to tell anyone. because there was like a like dispute about the mass curriculum or something and like the policy had to go through all together and I was literally like are you kidding they're like arguing about whether like children needed to learn long division or not and I was like I never learned long division and I'm fine (laughs) but But let me let's talk about consent education (laughs) they agreed on the consent part but they were arguing about use of calculus long long division. Division and stuff like that <laughs> so but they did reassure me that that it was going to be happening I wasn't allowed to say anything and then quite funny it accidentally somehow got slipped and someone said something about it and said it question time or something and I saw it and I was like "Ooh!" and then the government was like yeah okay go ahead celebrate <laughs> so then we got to have a big moment and yeah that was just incredible to finally just All those people who probably, you know, they may have put that testimony in a year before and kind of forgotten about it, or they may have been following along with the campaign, they may have seen an article about it the year before and then not seen it again. And then just to have this full circle moment, it was pretty much exactly a year later to say, like, you know, especially to those people who posted a testimony and also the people who signed the petition, you so selflessly put such an intimate moment of your life out there on a public forum purely for the benefit of future generations and what a potential benefit and that's come through and that actually worked I think it was just so nice as well to see that disruption of power from you know the way our country is run pretty much all decisions get made in Parliament House. And obviously, ultimately, this was a decision that was made in Parliament House, but the fact that it was 50,000 people from all around Australia saying they wanted something to happen and it actually happening. Yeah, petition feels like, I know they're obviously around a lot, but it does feel a little bit old school, doesn't it? <laughs> in fact, it- Yeah, it does. It does. But even as you're saying that, there's something about the invisible or the conversations behind closed doors can have an impact. Mm when they are combined and there's something quite extraordinary around that, that it was this kind of grassroots conversation. Because it's one thing to have a realisation, it's another thing to talk to your peers, put it onto your own Instagram account with the people that you might know. What is it that drives the activism and the advocacy for you? Where does that drive come from? I think initially, when I very initially posted on Instagram, that drive purely came from anger. I wish I could say something like more impressive or inspiring, but I was literally just like no. really pissed off at uh, the fact that it basically came down to the fact that 
I didn't think that the boys who sexually assaulted me and my friends when we were younger know that they've done that because I still don't think they understand what consent is. Well, I do think they do now, but I didn't think that they understood what consent was then. And that felt unfair that we had to live with the fact that this had happened to us and they don't even know that they did it to us. So I think injustice and anger drove that. And then now I think I just feel motivated by, it just seems the widespread sexual violence that is experienced in Australia, especially among youth, just seems so unbelievably preventable. And I say unbelievable because it's unbelievable that we haven't prevented it yet, given the fact that we know exactly what we need to do. There's evidence-based, there's research to talk about how we can change attitudes, how we can change beliefs, how we can change behaviours around these acts. So why aren't we doing it? So it only makes sense to try as hard as possible to see some sort of change happen in that space. Yeah, the the preventability adds or compiles to the frustration and the anger that kind of sits behind it. You have beautifully put this into your book, which has come out called Consent Laid Bare, which is really incredibly accessible conversation for all of us, boys, girls, men and women, to talk about consent. It's a complex issue. It's a tough issue, but a really important one. When you say the frustration of it being preventable, what is going to prevent and change? What benefits and gains does consent education provide, particularly for our youth? I think that, again, going back to that notion that we hold a stereotypical understanding of rape that is, you know, generally speaking, quite, if you ask someone on the street, you know, what does the word rape mean to you? What does that look like? They're probably going to say something about, you know, an attack, a stranger, violence, you know, being in an unsafe location at late at night, you know, your phone being out of battery, not telling your friends where you are, all of these sort of things that we consistently as women try to avoid. And I'm not saying that those types of rape, I'm not saying that doesn't happen. It does and it's devastating how often it does happen, but the vast majority of sexual violence occurs, well, I believe, <laughs> the way that I can continue to navigate the world with a positive outlook is by believing that it is perpetrated out of a lack of understanding of consent, out of ignorance, due to a poor education and due to societal norms. So the most likely demographic to sexually assault or rape someone is a 15 to 19-year-old boy and I don't think that 15 to 19-year-old boys are bad people or want to intentionally hurt people. I think that 15-year-old boys have gotten almost all of their sex education from pornography from a very young age, most of which is violent towards women or degrading towards them, almost all of which will never exhibit any form of consent and will not address any form of female sexuality or pleasure in that experience, therefore centering men in sexual encounters and their sexual satisfaction as paramount to the situation. And that's where I think consent education can come in and change things. We can explicitly talk about these things. We can say, no, you need consent. No, pornography is not a real or healthy depiction of what these things are meant to look like. We can say that without consent, that is an act of sexual assault or rape, depending on what jurisdiction you're in, what the law calls it. Because Young boys know that to be bad. We know what laws are. We know what that means. That's to be bad. But the way that we have normalized acts that do count as sexual assault or rape have meant that they 
are perpetrated out of ignorance, basically. And that not necessarily associating it with a criminal or a legal concern, which is such an important part of the education. Consent is, and you talk about in the book, that it is a complex thing to define. How can we best start to think about or understand what consent is? And maybe that's best done through what consent is Mm. not. Well, yeah, I guess the book goes a bit theoretical about, you know, what is consent, what's not consent, because it does take a look at if we're thinking about how dictating the patriarchy is and our behaviours and desires and wants, where can we actually separate the line between our true desires and our desire to satisfy our sexual partner? But yeah, I think you need to read the books again. <laughs> I don't know if I can articulate Definitely read the book <laughs> because it's, it is complex and layered and I think it's important to talk about is the partner or the person that we're with, are they okay, are they saying mm. yes? but it's more complex than that. It is. It, it definitely is. But I think that I had to summarise it into a sentence to define consent and how to exhibit consent in a healthy way. My answer is always empathy or to be empathetic. If you are focusing on how your sexual partner or partners is feeling in a situation, if you're being empathetic towards their true desires, their emotions, their body language, you can't violate consent. It would be impossible. And I think when I speak at schools, I think often young boys sometimes do get worried and they raise concerns that they don't really understand how to how to check consent and they, they don't want to violate consent, but it's a scary and confusing thing for them to approach. And I think the reason for that is because we fail to have these conversations in other areas in a non-sexual way when children are younger it's a really good way to kind of like set things up for young people you know with holding hands or like giving them a kiss or you know playing with toys brushing their hair like all these different things at times where we can show our children how easy it is to ask for consent and accept no when consent's not given but I think again with like when speaking to young boys to make sure that they don't get worried about this issue it's basically you're not going to accidentally violate someone's consent if you care about that person and it's just as simple as that yeah the empathy being at the core of it and, and you talk about awareness so understanding and having empathy as well like you even talk about that the lack of education is just as much an injustice to boys as it is to girls for men as it is for women and how important that is. So, you know, thank you for sharing because I think that's a really vulnerable thing to be asking but such an important question for them to have a safe space to be able to navigate scenarios and situations. Do you find that in the education and the sessions that either you deliver or in the consent education training? Yeah, definitely. I mean, as you just said, I truly believe the lack of education that we give around consent, sexual assault, respectful relationships, whatever you want to call it, is such an injustice to our young men. They want to be having healthy and happy relationships and they deserve healthy and happy relationships. And the behaviours that our society have normalised means that in almost all cases when someone is violating consent by accident, it is going to be a young man. And that would be a horrible thing to have to live with, especially because, you know, most men are good people. Most men do care about things. But having 
this realization for them. I mean, speaking about realizations, yes, when I speak to young girls, they often, you know, someone maybe starts crying or they start whispering to each other or like whatever it is they're having their realization. You should see the faces of the young boys when I give this content to them. Tell me, what do you know? I mean, some of them go like as white as a ghost. Some of them look out the window blankly. Some of them freak out. Some of them nudge each other. Some of them look down at their knees. Some of them just look at me in like pure shock. And a lot of them ask questions. I mean, I've had some of the most honest and vulnerable questions come from young men versus young women in these sort of sessions. Because like I said, they don't, like they, I believe humans are inherently good people. I believe they are inherently good people and they don't want to do anything wrong. And a lot of young people desire intimate and safe relationships. So when someone is up there explicitly talking to them in a way that means, you know, we trust you to be able to ingest this content. I know I'm obviously older, but it feels a bit more peer to peer than kind of some of their older teachers. I think they're appreciative of that. And I think that it just shows how much more we need to have these conversations with them because the thing we're competing with is pornography. I mean, like a massive backlash is the wrong word, but like, I guess, counter argument for having these sort of conversations with young people is that they're too young to be talking about sex. We can't speak to them about these sort of things. And the taboo around the topic is such a large factor in why these sort of behaviors occur and don't get reported and people sit in silence around them, that shame around it for all parties. And the thing is, if you're a parent or an educator and you think kids are too young to be speaking about consent when they're in their teen years, they're they're almost definitely watching pornography, especially if they're boys, or they've definitely seen pornography. So the average age that a young person in Australia sees pornography for the first time is estimated to be around 11 years old. So, which is just heartbreaking to me. And most of the time it is accessed accidentally for those young people. However, again, if there is shame around this topic, do you think your child is going to come to you and tell you that they accidentally access this if they think it's something that they're never meant to see or never meant to speak about or never meant to confide in you about? So as we're trying to counteract this extremely dictating force of pornography, we need to be having open, honest, explicit conversations with young people about what healthy and safe relationships look like. Education is a really important part of that. As you mentioned before, parents also have a role to play. And not only are these really important conversations, but as I was thinking, reading the book, is that this can be education that wasn't given to parents as well. And so it can bring up a vulnerability of their own experiences, their own awareness, their own kind of understanding around sexual assault, violence, those sorts of things as well. So it's an incredibly vulnerable for parents, but so important for kids to be hearing and and another place for us to be having these conversations. What encouragement would you have, aside from it's important to have these (laughs) conversations, but what encouragement would you have for parents? I think your book is a really great accessibility tool to be tapping into for parents to access, whether it's some of the language, some of the questions, some of the definitions, some of the understanding. But what other encouragements would you have for parents to be stepping into these conversations that potentially might feel really hard, really vulnerable, but also really important? I think we need to take a step back and think about the biases that we have that have influenced the culture of our young people. So we currently live in a rape culture. And sometimes when I say that, people are like, oh my God, she's like, you know, (laughs) she's lost it. Like, (laughs) that's insane. How could you possibly say we live in a rape culture? Rape is bad. 
because they don't believe that's true or that that feels extreme? I guess both, yeah. But, I mean, a rape culture is a sociological setting where rape and sexual violence and harassment are pervasive and normalised due to societal attitudes around gender and sexuality. And the key word there is normalised because these acts occur and no one thinks anything of it. You know, if you're a schoolgirl, being wolf-whistled by a grown man in a car when you're at the bus stop is basically commonplace. You know, in the workforce, rates of sexual harassment that occur in work are astronomical. We all know that. It's, there's no denying it. One in five Australian women will be raped in their life. That is a rape culture. That means that we have normalised it because that means that many 97% of perpetrators are men. That means that many men think that what they've done is okay to do. And I think it's hard to think about how we've contributed to that culture, especially if we're not someone who individually has ever perpetrated violence against someone else, but all of us have contributed to or upheld that culture in some way. So like when I was younger, for example, I used to use the word slut all the time, like just very casually, unknowingly, just commonly. And often... When I used that word, it was in reference to an act that was an act of sexual assault for someone else. And I didn't understand that in my mind. I was like, oh, my God, she was so drunk. Like, what a slut. And she did that. And I think we just need to kind of take collective accountability about what that looks like, especially for parents, because as you said, a lot of them grew up without this sort of education. And there's just so many challenges to it because it's like, so many parents will be victims of sexual violence themselves. So many parents will be perpetrators of sexual violence themselves. And denying either of those things is counterproductive to what we're trying to do, which is to prevent the next that to be true for the next generation. So I think it is, it is just really complex. But I also do mention this in the book, although from a political perspective, I spend a lot of my time trying to, you know, impact curriculums and policies around these sort of things. Ultimately, what is taught in a classroom will never really be fully good enough. We may be able to tell the legal definitions of consent and we may be able to encourage people to have respect towards each other. However, the way that parents grow up their children is really what's going to change here. The conversations around the dinner table, the way they engage in you know, watching programs on TV about these topics together, all of these sort of things, the like inherent respect that's towards women and other marginalised identities, that's kind of where the crux is. So, yeah, I would really encourage parents to, I guess, reflect on their own bias before engaging in these conversations and not think of these conversations as a one-time thing. Think of it as something that you need to have with your child from until they're kind of an adult. Bringing awareness and empathy for ourselves as parents, but also to the conversation with our kids. One of the things you touch on in the book is really the difference between female sexuality, female desire, pleasure, and the way that that is seen as a taboo, whereas male desires often and satisfaction is often seen or taken as a given. How do you hope that this changes for generations to come? I think we need to remove shame and taboo around sex first and foremost. I think that taboo has significantly been lifted for men, but not so much at all for women. I think that we still have this pervading notion that sex is something that a man takes from a woman, that he wins when he gets and that she loses out in some way because she's given in, she's been won over, like whatever you want to call it. And I mean, we see that all the way from rom-coms to like... (laughs) 
to the way our parents speak about these sort of things. Purity culture impedes kind of like a lot of aspects of the world, especially in like certain religious places. But I think this disproportionate focus on women to be pure or whatever you want to call it, to not engage in sexual activity, again, adds those taboos. And when we don't tell young girls and women that sex is supposed to be an enjoyable experience for them, we leave them especially vulnerable to being coerced into sexual encounters because they can't tell the difference between consensual and non-consensual sexual situations or where they want to be and where they don't want to be if they've been told that it's supposed to hurt, it's not supposed to feel good, they're meant to avoid it, they're not meant to do it. So I think it actually leaves our children really dangerous to have these pervading myths. It leaves them in danger. What might be some of the ways or even some of the conversations you have in in the sessions through the school in terms of where you would encourage young kids to start to talk about healthy intimacy? So when I go into schools, it's a bit more difficult because I actually do think that this is a conversation for parents to be having with their children because although I feel quite confident to deliver that sort of education to anyone who's, you know, whose parents trust me with their children any parents who would trust me with their children I don't think all teachers would feel equipped to have conversations around these sort of things I think we definitely need teacher training so that they can but I think the level of explicitness we need I think does need to come from the family home in a lot of these situations and I think it is just as simple as that I think it is conversations around pleasure removing taboos you know all the way from conversations around self-pleasure to the fact that Again, sex is meant to be an enjoyable thing. It is not meant to be something that you spend your life avoiding or that you spend your life avoiding giving in to men for it. I remember when I was in year four, someone (laughs) broke into the school and spray-painted sex is fun on the bathroom blocks at school. And then it, like, started a, like, wild conversation around, like, what sex is and, like, blah, 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 amongst all the kids and everyone asked their parents then came to school and reported back to each other and, like, spread all these false messages or whatever. And that was the only time in my life in any sort of educational setting or just just anything where it was told to me that sex was meant to be an enjoyable experience. And that was, like, not the way that I shouldn't have got that message. No, (laughs) not through graffiti. No, not through graffiti. And it's just... I think we just need to completely reframe how we have it. I think it is confronting because I think it is hard to digest the fact that teenagers have sexualities because I don't think we like that idea. However, it's true and 50% of year 10 to 12 students in Australia are sexually active right now. And I think it's 45% of women under 18 who are sexually active have had an unwanted sexual encounter. And the way that unwanted sexual encounters were described were to me about acts of sexual assault you know being too intoxicated to be able to consent being physically forced into the situation being blackmailed or coerced into the situation and that is a national emergency and that shows how much we are Mm. failing young people you are presenting at the national press club on the 1st of november this year what's your main message or action that you would love people to take away when you when you present (laughs) i guess i have a while to speak at that so i'm going to hopefully (laughs) i know you haven't read that yet but (laughs) hopefully i'm going to cover off a few policy points but i think the main thing that i really want to drill down into is the fact that this is preventable this is one of our most preventable Mm -hmm. crimes And there is an incredible evidence base and research base to show us how to do that. 
And we basically need all hands on deck to make it happen because Australia is, you know, in terms of HDI index and, you know, country economic growth and like all the measures, whatever, we rank so highly and we're just so far behind in gender equality that it's actually embarrassing. And something that really stuck out to me when I was doing my master's, I was in a group project with people from all different parts of the world. And when I explained to them the rape culture that existed in Australia, they were just shocked. They were like, how could that happen in Australia? They were all from low-income countries and they thought Australia was this kind of like safe haven of human rights. Yeah, human rights violations happen all around us all the time. So I will definitely be outlining explicit policies that I think we need to change at a political level at that National Press Club address. But the bottom line will be, this is preventable. And if you're not actively trying to prevent it, then you are completely complicit in the problem. Are you optimistic about change? Yeah, I am. Somehow. Um, <laughs> even though a lot of evidence points to, the, like, points to the contrary, I think Australia is at a really pivotal point in this space right now. I think that if we keep the momentum going and the conversations going a little bit more, if people continue to have these conversations with young people, if governments continue to call things like consent education a national priority, then I do feel really optimistic. If I come to you, this kind of work is incredibly important. Your voice, the change that you've already had an impact on making but can continue to have in this country is critical. But the work is relentless and I have no doubt that there are times that it is draining for you personally. What are some of the ways that you support your own energy in order to continue to turn up to do important work? I mean, to be honest, I'm still trying to figure that out. <laughs> Occasionally get some yeah. sleep probably. <laughs> no, I have, I have reached burnout once or twice where just, yeah, ridiculous amounts of sleep and almost getting in like a freeze state where I can't really do anything. And when I feel myself getting to there now, I just try to stop everything until I feel as though I can handle it again because there's no point reaching that state because then you can't get anything done anyway. And unfortunately, this problem is going nowhere <laughs> for a while. So, you know, resting for a bit doesn't matter. But I don't know. It's been really hard. And before I started this petition, I didn't even know what vicarious trauma was. And then I didn't know what was wrong with me. And then I basically found out that because I read thousands of testimonies of sexual assault within mm. a few weeks, my body basically thought it had been sexually assaulted like I guess thousands of times and like li reliving and having all of these memories in my mind has been really 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 hard but the way I get through it all is again thinking about the fact it's preventable thinking about the fact that almost all of these instances happened out of ignorance and not out of malice and hoping and expecting better of people Sometimes the bolder the action, the bolder the vision, the more important it is to be looking after our energy mm. along the way. For anyone listening, I think that's so true and thank you for sharing. I know that's it's hard uh, but so important to, to find these ways to look after ourselves and to come back to those kind of key purposes and changes that we can do. And I guess when I hear you say that, probably what comes to mind is more and more people having these conversations will help. What are some of the stories of change that you've heard that maybe encourage you to keep driving these conversations? God, so many. I mean, I mean I've mean, i had women in their 70s message me saying they never told anyone about their experience 
of sexual assault until the yeah petition like you know some of these people sat on it for 50 years more I've had boys message me things that makes me feel really hopeful about the future because they have admitted to doing these bad things saying they didn't mean to do it they wish they didn't they didn't understand it and they've grown up and they want to do better and they want to raise their sons better and then yeah one of the biggest stories for me was a woman my age messaged me saying that her her mom and her grandma were all watching my 60 minutes episode together and they started having a conversation around sexual assault and the way that her mom and her grandma were engaging in the conversation in like a very positive way being like very nice and supportive about my work and about consent education and all these things made her feel comfortable to tell her mom and her grandma for the like that she had been sexually assaulted to which her grandma then said I was sexually assaulted when I was your age and I never told anyone in my whole life until now and then her mom said I've also been sexually assaulted I didn't want to tell my daughter or my mom because I didn't want to upset you or I didn't want to be judged by you and then so it's just in that one conversation three generations of shame broken from yeah and I can only hope that multiple conversations were had after that you know maybe after people listening to this podcast after reading the book it is conversations that create cultural change I know that's cliche but it actually is and that's what gives me hope. I just got goosebumps as you were saying that and and it's almost like in the same moment it's heartbreak and healing and that's the the opportunity here. It's such important conversation. Consent Laid Bare is an extraordinary book that needs to be in the hands of as many people as possible. So Chanel, thank you for putting that together. My final question for you, the name of this podcast is called Standout Life. When you hear that term, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? Ooh, it's tough. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm pretty proud of my book. I guess that means that, I guess, because we're obviously it's here talking about the book. That's <laughs> first that came to mind as a standout mm. moment in life, I guess. But yeah, so I guess, I guess it means having done something that will hopefully make change for other people, make the future a better place. And I, something I really hope this book can do. What are you most proud of with this Most book? proud of with the book. God, I don't know. It's so hard. I, uh, Getting it published yeah, probably. Just, <laughs> just the fact that it's written and published, <laughs> I think. I guess yeah. I'm, I, I'm really proud of the tone that the book comes across as. I think it is really accessible, which is what I wanted from the start. It took a little while to get there, but I'm really proud of the fact that I, I did a lot of research for this book and – the actual first draft I wrote of this book, my publisher sent back to me within 24 hours and said, rewrite it, it's too academic. <laughs> so I had to rewrite the whole thing. Yeah. Um, but I'm really proud that I put it in a way that I think anyone can access and especially young people who I think will hopefully benefit from it the most. So I'm proud of that, that I've made a lot of stuff that's been inaccessible in the past and a topic that I think can be quite inaccessible and heavy, quite accessible. I also, I don't know, maybe you disagree because I guess I'm just so used to it. I live and breathe it and I obviously wrote it, but it doesn't feel too heavy. I don't know if you find that, but it feels as though it is, obviously it's a very heavy topic, but it feels as though it comes across in an easy way. And I'm proud of that as well incredibly accessible for an important topic and I, I'm glad your editor kind of pushed the rewrite <laughs> because I, I can imagine that seesaw between academic and shock and awe 
can be like it's it's kind of navigating that so you've done that incredibly well it is accessible uh it's an important book chanel thank you so much for your conversation and for joining me in this conversation thank you ali it was so nice to be on the show thanks If you've enjoyed this conversation, then let's keep the conversation going. The main place that I hang out is on Instagram at Ali Hill, A-L-I-H-I-L-L. One of the ways you can continue to support me and the team behind the podcast is if you could take two minutes just to rate and review Standout Life Podcast on whatever platform you are listening to. You can also subscribe to the podcast so you'll be notified when new episodes come out. And if this conversation is one that you know that someone in your world would get huge amount of value out of, then please share share it with them or maybe share it on your socials. Once again, thanks so much for tuning in, for your ongoing support and for joining me in exploring what does it really take. As always, this is Standout Life Podcast and I'm Ali Hill.